Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church, Sunday services and building our community is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. This week, as well as a talk from Sunday's online service from me, there's also an intro on here from Ed that we wanted to put out to be unequivocal about where we as a church have and always will stand on racism. We have lots more to talk about, but we have real hope for change right now. Please get in touch if you want to talk about this more. Good morning. As I'm sure you're aware, George Floyd was killed by a white policeman in Minneapolis on Monday. I need to speak to this for a little bit just before we continue with the rest of our service. Now, for many of us, this will be an all too familiar story, one that we've seen played out a thousand times, another example of the injustice faced by African Americans almost on a daily basis. And it will make us angry, and it will make us uh, exercised, and it will also probably make us saddened and fearful too. For others of us, regrettably so, we will actually try to ignore the implications and reality of George's death. I think this for a number of reasons, but one in particular. Racism is sin, and all of us in our fallen state will actually do quite a lot to not have to confront sin, our own or other people's, as much as we can. But, as I'm sure we're all aware, not confronting sin doesn't actually make it go away. If anything, it does the opposite. It's allowed to breathe and mutate and take on a power of its own in the shadows. I'm sure we will know this from our own personal lives and if we look at the life of our country. So engage, we must. And let's be clear, racism is a systemic problem in this country. But let us also be clear, racism has no place whatsoever in the Kingdom of God. Now, I am no politician. Better minds than mine will speak and write about how we can best order society so that inequality and injustice are eradicated. But I am a Christian, and I am a church leader, and I know that Jesus has the power to defeat all sin, all racism, from our minds, from our actions, and from our souls. So I implore us, as his church, God's whole rescue plan for the world. Let us not sit idly by. Let us rage against racism. Let us do it in the power of Jesus' cross and see that all racism is dispelled from our own lives. And let us do it by the power of his love and petition and fight against any injustice or racism that we see in this land. We can do it in three ways. Firstly, by being honest with ourselves. Search my heart, O God, says David in the Psalms, and see if there is any offensive way in me. Let us follow his example, and like he says, ask Jesus to lead us onto the way everlasting. And secondly, we can educate ourselves. We're putting together a bunch of resources. There'll be a link to it at the end of the service and they'll all be there on our homepage where we can educate ourselves, where we can broaden our experience and understanding of the problems. 
And thirdly, let's mobilise ourselves. Write to your representatives in government and tell them what sort of country you would like to live in. We must vote and we must support those organisations that are fighting racism and injustice across this land. Again, resources will all be on our website. So, thank you. This is Church. Welcome to it. It's great to have you with us. And let us join together for this next 45 minutes or so, worshipping the King of Kings, glorifying him, hearing his word and being changed by his spirit. Have a great Sunday. Uh, my name's Hannah, if we don't know each other, and I was scheduled to speak about the matriarchs this morning. We're zooming through this very long book of Genesis and it felt like we couldn't really not address the questions that some of these lady characters raise for us. But before I do that, I need to be very honest about how clunky this feels today. As a white woman with a voice, with healthcare, who doesn't fear going for a run or driving my car. I am among the most privileged demographic in the whole world and so to speak about the inequality that I have experienced and wrestled with theologically feels like it might be dangerously tone-deaf. So before I begin, let me say this, not as an affiliate of any political position or as demanded by the intersectionality rulebook, that what I'm drawing out of Genesis about the cracks um, with ourselves, within ourselves, with each other, with our relationships, with the garden, with the world around us, is that we were made for oneness. These cracks weren't the intention and no one is okay when one of us is not okay. These are cracks that already existed before any of this happened, but they are creaking, groaning and snapping under COVID. I think that's just what we're seeing happening right now. But we must remember what we're called to. Not just faith for something better in the future, for a time when we believe that all suffering comes to an end. We are also called to bring the kingdom in the here and now. A kingdom of oneness, all one in Christ Jesus. So to cut right to the chase, we have to know what it is that we believe for ourselves in order to really believe in the power of these things in the kingdom today. If we know God, and yet we don't really have a clue what some of these stories about him and his relationship with his people actually mean, we are held back. We're not sure about what was intended, what we actually have hope for and hope in. My hope is that some of this will speak to that today. The day of our gender scan, when I was pregnant with our first child, was a day I will never forget. I'd been convinced for some 20 weeks that we were having a boy. He had a name. I actually believe that God had spoken to me about him, about this little boy and our life, the three of us, together. So the scan was just, you know, to be sure. So when the sonographer said the words with a big smile, I can clearly see you're having a little girl. The bottom of my stomach started f to fall away in a way that I couldn't quite understand and it didn't stop falling away as I heard Ed celebrate with excitement. It didn't stop falling away as I got dressed and walked down the stairs and walked to the bus stop and stood there. It was actually only after I'd got on the bus and sat down and started to cry 
that I realised what it was that I believed. God is giving us less of a blessing because we are having a girl. I became quite invested, as you'd imagine, in uncovering why I believed this to be true. I'd been going to a Christian church for four years by now. I'd been a member of a Christian community with sound and gospel-based teaching. I knew all about Jesus's revolutionary treatment of women. The fact that women were among his best friends, his most trusted witnesses, the ones he sought to protect most clearly. Jesus was unwaveringly committed to women, and I knew that. I think some of it was just experiential. By this point in my life, I was familiar with the global stats on glass ceilings, on pay gaps, on violence. I had been sexually assaulted. I'd experienced a degree of discrimination. It just seemed a bit true. Life isn't going to hand this child the same deal now that this child is a girl, not a boy. But as I examined it, there was fear in me, and I think it had to do with a growing belief that I was called to speak and lead in church, a belief I lived in abject denial of for some years to come. And it was a belief that God didn't create girls equally. That the way I'd read about in parts of the Bible with men in charge over women, women often silent, women often nameless, was in some way God's way. And the stories of the matriarchs, were some of the main characters in this Old Testament not quite sure what God thinks about equality tapestry that I'd woven myself. Which is because, we've talked about this a lot, I was guilty of reading these stories the wrong way. I should say I did have shortly after this one of the most powerful encounters with the Holy Spirit that I have ever experienced where I felt like he spoke to me and moved me in a way so powerfully that whatever this pain was, wherever I felt it, it just left. He spoke to me about what he did believe about all of this and it just erased it. It is why, among, along with a few other experiences that I have had, I powerfully believe that the Spirit wants to heal our emotional and spiritual wounds as well as our physical ones. The stories of the origins of the Jewish people aren't here's how to do it stories. They don't give us a picture of God from the top of some moral ladder saying, be like these guys. I picked these guys because of their really good lives, their great performances, they have wonderful moral records. These guys don't shine in a lot of these stories. There is a massive difference in the genre of these stories from any kind of story that speaks to us about the created intention. These stories are written in a particular context as we have laboured, a context of deep pain. When the people of God lost their land, their temple and their very identity and they are written of a time, a specific time, a time that we need to do quite a lot of ethnocentric shedding of our time, our worldview, our individuality, our idealism, our concept of rights, in order to understand it. This worldview was deeply tribal. Life was just plain survival, and in order to survive, you needed your family to grow. Sons meant more workers, more soldiers, and more family line. Daughters meant, among other things, vulnerability, 
dowry expense and a higher risk of premature death due to the highly risky endeavour of childbirth. Injustice was woven into our broken world right from the very beginning. A woman's life, her role and her value was entirely based on her eligibility to marry and her role as reproducer. And here we set the scene for our matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah and Rachel, the wives, obs, of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They have quite a lot in common with each other, these four women, all centred around their role and value. Three of them are famed for their beauty, so easily attract a husband and a protector, but then struggle with their other role to conceive. The other one was famed for her not being beautiful, but being forced upon a husband who didn't want her. But she was fertile as a turtle. What they all do have in common is a big problem with fulfilling their role. And this is very important as we look at how God meets them in these problems. But there are some things about these stories that we find very easy to miss if we assume that women in Genesis are just part of someone else's story. This isn't something we can apply the Bechdel test to. This isn't something that we can draw our moral conclusions from. As a side note, this isn't strictly speaking relevant, but I do need to share it. I came across a, a survey this week from USA Today on biblical knowledge, um, and it asked its recipients if they could name Noah's wife, which is a trick question, of course, because Noah's wife isn't named. However, 40% of responders to this question answered Joan. Joan of Arc with her sword and her horse, probably two horses, Joan of the Ark. I have enjoyed it immensely this week. But these stories do not stack up to our version of women's liberation, to our standards, but they are revolutionary in many other ways by ancient Near Eastern standards. The fact that they're included at all is actually kind of revolutionary. Mothers weren't notable characters to most Near Eastern religions. But to the Hebrews, all these women all play vital parts in how God's promises play out. They all receive his blessing, which is very unusual for women. And they all play active, um, sorry, and he plays an active role in all of their lives. They are far more than just footnotes to the men's stories. They express emotion. They solve problems, they use their intuition and intellectual skills, all despite the fact that they live in a world where they are seen as mere property. Hagar, of course, isn't a matriarch, what with being an Egyptian slave and all, she is quite literally the bottom rung of anyone's ladder. But she serves a devastating blow to anyone attempting to make a case that women are second-class citizens in God's kingdom. She's taken by Sarah in the same uh, language used of Eve taking the fruit who then treats her harshly when she becomes pregnant and she runs away. At which time she receives the Bible's very first angel visitation. Her story implies dignity, meaning, prophetic inclusion in the story, and she becomes the world's first theologian. She gives God a name. In fact, no one else in scripture, male or female, has given God a name by this point, but Hagar does. She names him Elroy the God who sees me. 
and she cries out for the invisible and mistreated people throughout the history of humanity, the God who sees us. Right at the beginning, this story is changing all of the rules. And this is a separate talk that you can find online that's kind of important to everything that we believe, so I'd love you to go back and find it if you haven't heard it. This story goes hand in hand with the revolutionary, epoch-defying story of God's actual created intention, as told in the overtures at the beginning of Genesis. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Male and female in his image, the word is Salem. Blessed, both of them, made like God. In the second creation account, in the next chapter, Eve is made from Adam's rib, a symbol of side, companionship, mutuality, brought together for oneness because God wanted them to know what he knows in the Trinity, oneness without hierarchy. Everything else in the Bible and everything else we face in life, every discussion of other, of power, of race, of divinely ordained role, is to be understood in light of this Eden image of oneness, human beings in union with self and with God and communion with each other and the garden around us. This is what was meant. But, and this is vitally important, the creaking, the cracks, the broken world didn't come about because it was divinely ordained as a punishment or curse for men or women. That's just not what this story was about. The cracks just were. Our roles were broken. Babies died, crops failed. Life as a sixth century BC Hebrew was hard, just as it has always and will always be for men and women alike. The crack affects everything in our relationship with God, self, other and the world, but not because God intended it. But it is true, oneness has entirely become otherness. And otherness brings us to another sibling story here in the matriarch's tales. We've seen a few of the sibling stories already. They do seem to have a great power um, to bring us together over the narrative of other. The relationship between Leah and Rachel is one of the most complex sibling relationships in the Bible, but, and it brings a lot of Cain and Abel with it, but it also lands us right back in the middle of Jacob's struggle for his future. Leah is older, but it's Rachel who catches Jacob's eye, and her father Laban tricks Jacob, the original trickster, into marrying the sister that he doesn't want, which slips his attention until the following morning when it is agreed that he'll marry Rachel too. So seven days later, there they all are, man and wife and wife, sister and sister. Both crave what the other has. Leah longs for Jacob's love but Rachel is desperate for children. Leah's precious baby boy count grows to four, then they both get their handmaids involved, who have two boys each, so it takes it to eight. Rachel then tries her hand at a spot of swapping a night with her husband for a rare ancient fertility phallic-shaped magic plant called a mandrake, but that doesn't work either. It's Leah who finds more favor with God as she has another boy, and then a girl as the story plays out. And then finally, Rachel conceives a boy, not because of the phallic-shaped magic plant, because it says God remembers her, her shame is finally overcome, 
and Joseph, this baby, will grow up to be Jacob's favourite and cause no end of bother with his flashy coloured threads. Barrenness is important in the Hebraic worldview. It serves as a metaphor for the national tragedy of exile from their homeland, a symbol used throughout the prophet's writings and has important meaning here. The fertility of all these once barren women stands as a symbol of God's ultimate reversal of their political fortunes. For bereft Israel, just like Rachel, God's remembering her was the only source of hope, the only source of future. If he doesn't, human mechanisms can do nothing about it. But he does. This is what these stories meant to everyone who heard them. He remembers. He remembers Sarah, he remembers Rebecca, he remembers Leah and he remembers Rachel. And he remembered Hagar, who knew it first. He is the God who sees. He sees the mothers of Israel, the loved and the not loved, the beautiful and not beautiful, the wife and the slave. God sees and God will not forget us. The story moves on. Jacob leaves with all the sister wives and the children and a few more chapters of not completely great stuff that happens to Dina, his daughter and the brothers, but we're gonna leave that there. Jennifer is now going to read for us from chapter 35. After Jacob returned from Padamaram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. And as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Benoni, but his father named him Benjamin. Thanks, Jennifer. Rachel always asked for sons. And the second one finally arrives when they're traveling home. And as she's giving birth, she knows she's going to die and she weeps as she names him Ben-Oni, son of sorrow. And then she dies and her midwife tells her not to be afraid, just like the angel does to Mary, one of the few prophetic foreshadows in this story. And she is buried on the road to Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31, written during exile after Nebuchadnezzar has seized Jerusalem, plundered the city, destroyed the temple and taken everyone captive. Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rama is a staging post like a transit camp for exiled Jews on their way out of the land into captivity as slaves in Assyria, weeping that we can only imagine. 
Jeremiah presents this woman of her people, the great matriarch of her tribe, addressing them in exile to console them with words full of emotion. Mothers, of course, aren't the only ones who weep, but if there is a more de extreme depiction of the agony of loss that cannot be consoled than a mother who has lost a child, then I'm not sure I know it. A pain that George Floyd's mother, who passed away last year, was spared this week, but a pain that the mother of black sons all over this country this week, I know, are drowning in it again. Pain that is part of this broken, creaking world. An injustice that is impossible to accept. Rachel is a symbol to Israel and to all of us. To all of the pain that all of the loss causes. Pope Francis said of this passage in Jeremiah a couple of years ago after a massacre in a Brazilian prison. It feels quite apt to read it today. This, Rachel's refusal to be consoled, is what's needed when faced with the suffering of others. To speak about hope to the desperate, we must share their desperation. To dry a tear from the face of one who suffers, we must unite his tears with our own. Only in this way will our words be truly capable of giving hope. There is a third time Rachel's weeping is written about. In Matthew chapter 2, 18, when Herod kills all the Jewish baby boys after the Magi have visited him, Matthew quotes these same verses from Jeremiah and he says, this is now fulfilled. Jesus' birth is the fulfillment. Herod has slaughtered the children and Israel is weeping once more, a detail we do tend to exclude from the pageants. And Mary and Joseph flee into exile with the baby. Finally, at the end of Jesus' life, he heads to Jerusalem and weeps over it. How I wish I could take you under my wing, a mother's wing. Weeping like a mother. Jesus, the ultimate Rachel, who is going to die so that we can be born again. These stories all, always pointed to Jesus. God himself coming for all of us in all of the brokenness, whose battle cry manifesto is, the last shall be first, the least shall be greatest, the Hagars, the bottom rungs of the ladder, lifted to the top of it. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. We must know the story that we live in. This is not just wonderful ideology. This is life-changing, world-changing power. Jesus has won the battle. He has righted the wrongs and he fights for us and with us and we're not alone. When we're weak, he is strong. So let's move into another song of worship and then into ministry if you're watching this live. Anyone who is grieving, anyone who is feeling the pain of injustice, let's give our devotion to him again. Allow him to be our strength. Allow him to comfort us as he promises to. Come Holy Spirit, as we sing, pour yourself out on this broken, hurting land. 
Old things have passed away. Your love has stayed the same. Your constant grace remains the cornerstone. Things that we thought were dead are breathing in life again. You cause your sun to shine on darkest nights. For all that you've done, we will pour out our love. song Jesus we love you oh how we love you you are the one our hearts adore our hearts adore have found their hope the orphans now have a home all that was lost has found its place in you you lift our strong instead you took these rags and made us beautiful for all that you've done we will pour out our love this will be our anthem song Jesus we love Jesus, our affection, 
As Ed said, there's a bunch of us waiting to pray for you on Zoom in a one-on-one -on -one room. We are full of faith. We know that God heals our emotions as well as our bodies and our spirits. So please come join us, especially if you are hurting, especially if you're feeling scared. Please come and experience some of the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do in your life today. For the rest of you, uh, have a wonderful week. We are here. God bless you. Bye. I'm a young black man Doing all that I can To stand Oh, but when I look around And I see what's being done to my kind Every day I'm being hard to this prey My people don't want no trouble We've had enough struggle I just want to live, God protect me, I just want to live, I just want to live.